All right, uh, well, um, for those of you who don't know me, if there is anybody, my name's Ben, um, and uh, I fill in occasionally, um, preaching and teaching. I'm not one of the elders here, but kind of a lay teacher. And um, so our two elders are out of town this week, so I get to fill in. And my mode of operation that I've decided on is to sort of just preach through the Psalms unless there's something pressing, something that, unless Steve or Chris tell me to preach on something else that they want me to preach on that they don't want to preach on. Just kidding. Well, they might. They've done it before. Uh, Or there's something else the Lord puts on my heart. I'm just going to default to the Psalms. You're probably thinking, we just talked about the Psalms in Sunday school. Haven't we had enough Psalms? You can never have enough Psalms, right? So there you go. So uh, I did some teaching um, on Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 in the Sunday school setting. And so we're going to look at Psalm 3 and hear from the, uh, the word this morning, the word of the Lord. So um, why don't we uh, read the psalm to start with? Let me open my Bible here too, just to have this. All right, Psalm 3. It has a title called a superscription, uh, and that is <clears throat> a psalm of David when he fled. Well, actually, I'm just going to read it, and then we'll go through verse by verse. Uh, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. O Yahweh, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to Yahweh with my voice and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for Yahweh sustains me. I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Yahweh. Save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be upon your people. Let's pray. Lord, um, we pray now not because we are supposed to or it's the time to pray or something like that or out of ritual. We pray, I pray, because I need you. We need you, Lord. This is your word. Um, I didn't write this psalm. Lord, your your servant David spoke this psalm, wrote this psalm through the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we ask that same Holy Spirit to give us, to give me utterance, to give us all ears to hear uh, the message that you have for us, Lord. Uh, What an amazing thought that we read this text. It's thousands and thousands of years old in that by your Holy Spirit, you speak to us who know you. Um, And Lord, for those who don't know you in here, Lord, I pray that you would speak to them for the first time, Lord, that you would use your word to cut through all of their confusion and their doubt and whatever else is going on and just speak plainly to them that you are uh, real and that you uh, have power um, and you, uh, that, that power is, is tied to your word, your speech, your utterance, Lord. If, if you didn't reveal yourself to us by being a speaking God, we would be totally in the dark, totally lost, totally confused, and Lord, we're thankful that that is not the case, that you've Um, you've spoken to us, you've given us clear words from you um, that are not just the words of men, but are what they really are, the words of God. And um, we pray that you would, uh, again, just be with us, Lord, by your spirit and and give us uh, understanding and clarity and uh, a clear application for what we're to do with these words, Lord, because it's never about just hearing, but doing. And we want to be doers and not uh, merely hearers of your word. And we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. All right, so I named this uh, sermon uh, The Strong Tower. And you're probably thinking, well, there's nothing about a tower in this psalm. Well, that's because I think the proverb, uh, Proverbs 18.10, this proverb sums up the psalm pretty well. Uh, The name of Yahweh is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. I think that pretty much captures exactly what's going on in this psalm. So you get the title, The Strong Tower. Um, and you know, I just looked on online and probably illegally pulled this picture off, so sorry. Uh, I don't know how to, okay, I won't go into that. Anyways, so here's a picture of an ancient tower, uh, and I like that this is from the, the bottom up, so it's kind of like you know, you're, you're one of the combatants coming up and trying to attack this tower, and this is kind of what it would look like from the bottom. You know, it's, it's, it's daunting uh, you know, when you have this solid wall that you're trying to deal with and people are shooting uh, arrows and things from the top and throwing rocks down on you and all this stuff. So uh, from, from the perspective of the book of Proverbs, here in this proverb, Yahweh is that strong tower and that's what David's perspective is in this, in this psalm. So 
<clears throat> let's start at the top. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. This is the first of the Psalms as you're going through the Psalter that has a title, uh, sometimes called a superscription. Super just means above, above what's written, so it's right there at the top, superscription. Um, as you probably know, you should know from our Psalms uh, Sunday School if you were there, uh, not all the Psalms have, have titles. Um, I don't remember the percentage that do, but a lot of them do. And most of the titles are tied to David's life, and that's great because it gives us some, uh, some levers to pull, right? When you come to the Psalm, you can say, okay, we can start looking at some other texts and pull in some, some background information. It's kind of like if you're reading, you know, say you're gonna start reading through the book of Philippians. Well, what sh where should you go first to get some background? The book of Acts, right? Because Acts talks, talks about Paul's uh, missionary journey, uh, you know, where he ends up in Philippi and, and the things that happen there, Philippian jail jailer and so forth. So it's good to get that background information. Now, we're not gonna go through in any kind of extensive way the background here. I'm just gonna summarize because there's a lot of things that happen, but summarize what the situation is that leads to this, this terrible event of, of David's son, Absalom, turning against him and actually declaring himself king. So, briefly, first king of Israel is who? Saul, and he's a great king, right? Well, at first, <laughs> he seems like a great king, and he turns out to be a, a failure, uh, because he's someone, as it turns out, who doesn't really trust in the Lord. He trusts in himself, right? So uh, what happens? God, Yahweh, removes the kingdom from Saul while Saul is still king and makes David the king. So you have this kind of like, you know, David's the real king, actually, in God's eyes, but Saul is still, is still reigning. And that doesn't work out so well. Saul doesn't like that. If you remember, Saul was, uh, had a positive relationship with David uh, at the outset because <clears throat> the, the way that David gets introduced to Saul's court is that David is a, a harpist and, um, and he gets you know, hired essentially, conscripted is probably a better word, to come in and play the harp for Saul uh, and soothe him because um, the Lord has sent an evil spirit to torment Saul actually. So, so Saul and David, you know, they're, they're uh, I don't know, friends is the right word, but they're on good terms, right? Um, and as we know, Saul eventually is put to death by the Lord ultimately, and David becomes king. Well, again, things are great at first, much like with Saul. Things are great with David's reign. He seems like a really great king. He's doing good things. He uh, takes this Jebusite city that is Jerusalem and makes it his capital city, um, moves the Ark there, the Ark of the Covenant, um, and everything's going great. Until, if you remember in 2 Samuel, we have this whole terrible, unfortunate unfolding of events of, of David getting a little too comfortable, a little too um, uh, laid back in his, his kingship and a little arrogant, and he falls into sin, right? We, we, we say falls into sin. Sin's always a choice, right? But he's up there on the roof, looking around, doing whatever, and he sees Bathsheba, this beautiful woman, bathing, and he, we know the story, he commits adultery, adultery with her to seal the deal. He kills her husband, Uriah the Hittite, and this is a terrible thing, right? Awful, awful thing. Um, and how does, this, how does this unfold for David? Well, the interesting thing is that unlike Saul, and this is something we're thinking about, so Saul sins, sins grievously against the Lord uh, in various ways, but there are a couple specific ways. And, and he's confronted with his sin by a prophet. And what is Saul's response? Excuses, right? <laughs> he, he has all these excuses. Well, this, well, that. Again, Saul doesn't have faith in the Lord. So Saul is the kingdom, you know, the kingdom's removed from Saul and he's put to death. David is not like that. This is the key difference. David is a man who's not perfect by any means. <laughs> I mean, if he's killing people and sleeping with other people's wives, th that's not good, right? He's not a perfect person. He's a, he's a great sinner in that respect. But when he's confronted by Nathan the prophet, does he make excuses? No. He, you know, Nathan says famously, you are the man. You know, he tells that great parable and it kind of entraps David. David sees for the first time the, the nature of, of his sin. He's confronted with it, right? And what is his response? I've sinned. Right? He doesn't make excuses. And then Nathan immediately says, the Lord has forgiven your sin. Now, that's true. The Lord forgives his sin. But that doesn't mean there are no temporal punishments. There are no temporal ramifications. Because we read uh, in, this, in this passage in, in 2 Samuel 12 that uh, what David says to him, I'm sorry, what Nathan says to David is, let me find it, sorry. 
Okay, here we go. Let's start in verse seven, sorry. 2 Samuel uh, verse, uh, chapter 12, verse seven. <clears throat> Nathan then said to David, you are the man, in other words, you are the one who's done this great sin. Thus says Yahweh God of Israel, it is I who appointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of Yahweh by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife, and etc. It goes on and elaborates from there more specifically. That is an important text, because that sets the the program for the rest of the book of 2 Samuel in respect to David. That David, unlike Saul, where, where the kingdom is removed from Saul, God removes the kingdom from Saul, he does not remove the kingship or the kingdom from David. But he does have certain ways that he's going to punish David for his sin. Because God takes sin seriously, right? So you have this, okay, I've forgiven your sin. Yes, ultimately, you're, you know, this, is a, this is something to ponder. But ultimately, David's with the Lord right now, right? His sin is forgiven, his pardon. It's not explained how that happens. That's the New Testament that explains that, right? We don't understand that. Sin's forgiven how? There's no sacrifice that takes place. Yes, there is, right? <laughs> there is. New Testament tells us that. But in the case of his, his temporal punishment, we just read about it. Out of his own household, there's going to be problems, right? That's going to be his punishment's going to come from his own house. He troubled the house of another. Now his house is going to be troubled. You see how that works out. How is it troubled? His son Absalom. His son Absalom is, is an evil person. And just to, to quickly summarize, Absalom gets, gets the idea that he wants to be king. And so he, he essentially uh, sets him, props himself up as someone who really is, has the ear to the ground. He's listening to the people. He's a people's, people's person, a people person. He's gonna listen to everybody who has problems. He's gonna deal with them where David's not. And he gathers a following to himself and he essentially stages this coup and announces himself to be the king, the rightful king. Okay, though he's not, he announces himself as such. And David, and this is in 2 Samuel 15, David has to end up leaving Jerusalem because so many people have sided with Absalom, his son, that now he can't stay there. He, he, his life is threatened. He and his small group of followers and friends, David's followers and friends, have to leave and go and live in the mountains and outside of Jerusalem. So this is the context of what's going on here. Uh, it's a sad title because... You know, it's Absalom, his son. It's sad, you know, it's, it's, it's heart-wrenching to read that. But that's how it unfolded. So that's the historical context of what's going on here. Um, just a word about the, the genre of this psalm. So we talked about genre of psalms in the, in the Sunday school class. And I said there are kind of three main genres of psalms. There's a psalm of, of lament, a psalm of thanksgiving, a psalm of, of praise. And this one is essentially a psalm of lament because he's crying out, for help, that's, what, that's the, the fundamental aspect of a lament psalm. But this psalm of lament is, is though it's a psalm of lament, it's strong in its tone of, of confidence in Lord at a certain point, as we read. He starts out lamenting, and then he turns very quickly to confidence in the Lord uh, based on, uh, really based on what the Lord does in his heart as he prays. So let's look at the first, the first verse here. Um, <clears throat> o Yahweh, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. So the way I thought about this, just you know, to summarize, what's, what's one phrase that summarizes what he's saying here? Things are going from bad to worse. He's not saying, I have enemies, God. He's like, I already had enemies. My problem is I have more than ever, right? Things are going from bad to worse. That's the problem here. Uh, they're increasing. Many are rising up against me. So he's lamenting the fact that his situation is getting worse and worse. And this is, this is confirmed by a passage in 2 Samuel 15, 12, which I'll just read. Um, and Absalom sent for Ahithophel, the, the Gilanite, who is, or was, David's counselor, who's basically a traitor. So David's counselor sides against David with his son Absalom. So Absalom sent for Ahithophel, David's counselor, from his city, Gilo, while he was offering the sacrifices. And the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. 
There you go. So 2 Samuel's reflecting exactly what David's complaining about here, that this conspiracy is strong. It's deeply, it's a well-laid plan. See, Absalom has planted these seeds for a long time and he staged this thing. It's, a, it's an elaborate scheme to undermine David and it's working, right? So much so that David has to flee and David is acknowledging here that many are rising up against him. Many are increasing. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. So how does David start this psalm? How would, how would we start, well, let me, say, let me back that up and say it again. How does David process this? Many are rising up against him. Many are saying of his soul, there's no deliverance for him in God. I know what I would probably do, I would start complaining to other people about my, my situation. Wouldn't you? Probably. That would be your first your go-to on, on probably your normal day, not your super spiritual mountaintop day of walking with the Lord where you read like you know, five books of the Bible that morning. You would say, oh, my life is going really bad. Complain, complain, complain. That's not what David does. Maybe he did do it. Maybe he did do it. We don't know. But what he does do here in this psalm is he goes, Lord, Yahweh. He calls out to, to God. He calls out to Yahweh, right? This is what we should be doing. This is instructive for us. Many times in the psalms you read, the first, the first sentence is Yahweh, right? He's addressing God. He's calling on God to be his helper. His first response is to go to God for help. Um, however, it seems that uh, David's enemies believe that God is opposed to David and is on their side instead. Now, why do I say that? So the enemies are saying to David, there is no deliverance, or about David, there is no deliverance for him in God. Can I get some water? I'm starting to fill up. And one way to read this is to say, that the enemies are actually um, kind of saying something against, against David and against God primarily. I don't think that's what's going on here. I don't think the attitude of, of David's accusers here is to accuse God primarily. I don't think they're, these people are not atheists, right? These accusers are people who think God is on their side. And they're saying, there's no deliverance for him and God because God is on our side and not David's side. Now, if you think I'm making this up, I'm not. Here's, here's a passage to consider. Second uh, Samuel <clears throat> sixteen eight. There's this guy Shimei who is uh, a descendant of Saul, and he. If you remember this story, I'm not going to go into it in any length here. But Shimei is is uh, he thinks David is responsible for killing certain members of Saul's family, and Shimei comes alongside David as David's fleeing from Absalom, and you get the picture here. The image is that. You have David and his, his camp, his people traveling, you know, leaving Jerusalem. And there's this guy who's standing on the other side uh, of the pathway and he's throwing rocks at them and throwing dust at them. And he's saying all kinds of terrible things about David and accusing him really falsely of, of these things that, that, uh, that David supposedly did. So what Shimei says is, Yahweh has returned upon you, talking to David, all the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. Thank you. Oh, thanks. Appreciate that. And Yahweh has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. So that's the perspective of, of David's enemies, that God is against David. God is not, there is no deliverance for you in God, David, because God's not for you. God doesn't, God doesn't defend men of bloodshed. God doesn't defend people who are, are evildoers. But the reality is, as you read through First uh, and Second Samuels, that that's not who David is fundamentally. Now, David does some, as we said, some horrible things along the way. But when it comes to this instance of uh, the situation of killing Saul's um, uh, family members and associates, that is not the case. David was actually not for in any way. And, and uh, that you just read Second Samuel two and Second uh, Samuel two and three, chapters two and three, you'll see that. But anyway, that's what's going on here. They're saying there's no deliverance for him in God. And I thought about this passage uh, in Matthew chapter 27 during Jesus' crucifixion. It's a very similar thing going on, isn't it? Where Jesus is taunted by the, the, those passing by the chief priests. It says, in the same way also, along with the scribes and elders, uh, they were mocking him and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusts in God, let God rescue him now if he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. But then it says the robbers on either side were doing the same thing, they were saying the same things about him. So taunting, right, taunting. 
This is, this is what we see in the Psalms, that the Psalms are reflecting in a, a typological way, an, an antecedent, a pointing forward way in the life of David, what will ultimately happen in David's ultimate descendant, right, of Christ. That this life of David in some way mirrors and anticipates Jesus himself. And what David goes through, Jesus will go through in a similar but different way, right? There's, there's similarities and differences. But nonetheless, that there are, you know, it says about Christ that he had to go through sufferings with glories to follow, Peter says, right? The sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Well, what are the chief priests and the scribes and the elders doing here? They're saying, yeah, if God's really for him, let God save him. But they're really saying God's not for him, right? God's against this guy. Same thing that the, the, the um, uh, accusers of David are saying. The same attitude, the same mindset. But the reality is that that's totally false. God is for David, okay, in this, in this situation. So let's, get, the, let's get, this, get our heads around it. So David sins with Bathsheba, killing Uriah the Hittite. God says, I'm going to punish you for that. But he's not going to remove the kingship from David. But with Absalom, Absalom is doing something evil. God's using him to, to temporarily punish David. But it's something evil that Absalom's doing. But David is innocent in these, in these charges. In other words, Absalom is not justified in the way he treats his father David. David is innocent of these things, you see. David's not innocent of killing Uriah the Hittite. He's not innocent of, of adultery with Bathsheba. But he is innocent of anything in respect to Absalom. He actually loves Absalom, his son, very much. And, and, and it's, a, it's a, a terrible thing that happens with, with Absalom and David, the, the falling out that takes place. But it's not on David's side. It's not David's problem. It's Absalom's problem. Absalom is the evildoer here, not David. So moving on. <clears throat> but you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. A shield about me. So I, I looked up... Um, Lots of verses, actually all the verses in the Old Testament, which I'm not going to read right now, don't be worried, um, about uh, shield in the Old Testament when it's referring to God as a shield. Of course, it's oftentimes it's just an actual literal shield. But there are, um, here's a front and back, two page, this many verses on God as a shield. Again, not reading them all. But I want to summarize what I found here. God acts as a shield only for those who take refuge in him. 2 Samuel twenty two thirty one. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of Yahweh is tested. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. So he's a shield for those who take refuge in him. He's not a shield for those who are evildoers, right? So if people think they're gonna walk in wickedness and, and do all kinds of evil things and God's gonna have their back, think again. God is, sets his face against those people. And you need to be clear about that if you are... If you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you don't have access to the one true God, the Father, God is against you. God is at enmity with you. Whether you feel like you're at enmity with God or not, he, his face is against those who do evil. It actually says in Psalm 5, he hates all those who do iniquity, right? Now this is tempered with the fact that this same God who hates evildoers in some way also loves evildoers so much that he sent his son to save evildoers. That's who God is, right? But we don't want to undermine the fact that God's attitude toward wickedness and toward sinners themselves is that he hates, he hates them in, in, a, in a real sense, right? God hates wickedness and those to, who do evil, okay? So if you think that you're going to walk in a way that is contrary to what God says, the way you should live your life, the, the good life, the right way, and God's going to have your back, he will not. He will set his face against you to destroy you. That doesn't have to be the outcome, that's why I'm warning you and cautioning you. God doesn't play when it comes to his character. So just consider that. So those who take refuge in him, he will be a shield for. Those who are upright in heart, Psalm 7:10. My shield is with God, David says, who saves the upright in heart. Same attitude or same concept of, of uh, you know, taking refuge in him. Those who are, who are upright, who walk, as I was just saying, walk in righteousness, who are upright and do the right thing and not crooked, um, God will be a shield to them. What else does it say about a shield? Um, those who walk uprightly, very similar idea, for the Lord, or for Yahweh God is a sign and shield. This is um, Psalm 84. Yahweh gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So if you're walking in a manner that's basically 
oriented toward God. This does not mean perfection. This means that you're basically oriented toward God. You want to please God like David. You're like David. You don't do right all the time, but you want to please God. And when you fail and you fall and you sin and you, you know, do what's displeasing to the Lord, you repent and turn back. That's what it means to walk uprightly. God will be a shield to you. What else? Those who walk in integrity, uh, Proverbs 2, 7. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. So same, same concept, just different ways of, of styling it and talking about it, but you get the gist, that God is a shield to those who, uh, who seek him, right? Who have faith in him, who make, who make him, God, their strong tower. He will be a shield to you. He'll be a tower to you, a fortress, right? That's the, a refuge. That's what he'll be. But you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, he says, there's an interesting um, uh, verse here on, a uh, couple, couple of verses on shield. Two more things I want to say. Listen to this, 2 Samuel twenty two thirty six. You have also given me the shield of your salvation, and your help makes me great. So David says, I'm great. But he's not boasting. He's saying, your help makes me great, right? He recognizes who he is as the king of Israel, that he is great in a real sense, objective sense, right? He's not, this is not false humility, nor is it pride. It's seeing things rightly. But he, he, he sees it rightly in the sense that the greatness that he has is derived from God's help, you see. So we don't need to be, we don't need to have false humility about ourselves either, nor do we need to have pride. We need to see ourselves and judge, our, judge ourselves rightly, you know? That's how we need to regard ourselves. If, if God is giving you something, if you're a believer, you have gifts from the Lord and you're supposed to be functioning in those things, don't have false humility about it. Just say, yes, that's who I am, right? That's a gift from the Lord. I'm a teacher. The Lord has given me this gift. I don't think that I'm, that I conjured this up. This is something from the Lord. I, do I think I'm a great teacher? I don't know, I don't care. The point is, I'm trying to operate in what God has given me by his help, and here I am, right? And that's how we all should function with our gifts. Um, so he is great because of God's help. Secondly, and similarly in Psalm 18, listen to this. You, you have also given me the shield of your salvation. Same, same thing he says in the other psalm we just read. And your right hand uphold me, upholds me, and your gentleness makes me great. Ah, interesting. So God has this gentleness towards David and towards us, right? That it's, it's God's kindness toward us and his patience with us that makes us great. It, it, it's, it's amazing, you know, it's like we realize that, that God, the one who made the heavens and the earth, everything, is gentle and deals with us in a lowly way. He, he, he's patient with us and kind toward us. And, and that makes us great too, right? It makes David great. So, shield, a shield. It's interesting what he says here too. He says, a shield about me. Well, a shield, last time I checked, is just in front of you, right? But he says, your shield all the way around me, 360, right? Um, God guards every, every way his enemies could come to attack him. God is there. God is blocking his enemies for him. Uh, it's, we watch a lot of Blue Bloods. I don't know if, how many of you watch that show, but um, they often talk about, you know, I guess in cop terminology, uh, I got your six, you know? And what does that mean? It means I got your back, right? The part you can't see right behind you, here's 12 o'clock, I can see 12. I can't see my six, it's behind me. I've got your six, right? God has not only David's six, he has one, two, three, four, all the way around. He has a shield about him, right? That's his point here. He has every direction covered. No one's gonna sneak in and come from the side, come from the back. He's a shield all the way around. <clears throat> um, my glory, he says, and the one who lifts my head. This is an interesting statement here, my glory. This is really the only time the, 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 the two words together, my glory, are used several times throughout the Old Testament. I pulled that up too. I don't have my sheet up here, but this is really the only time it's used in this exact way. Um, and this is what I think it means. So as the rightful king, David could seek his own glory because kings have glory, right? Well, what is glory? Let's start with that, right? Well, glory in Hebrew just means heaviness. That's the root meaning. That doesn't tell us a whole lot. Like, okay, God is heavy, David has my heavy, what are we talking about here? It's like this, Jurassic Park. Okay, I sure hope everybody's seen Jurassic Park. I don't mean Jurassic World, I mean the first Jurassic Park. I've seen it probably more than any other movie ever. Uh, when that movie came out in the 90s, it was a big deal. 
I used to go over to my friend's house every day. I was like, what, 11 or something? And every day on his big screen TV, Jurassic Park, every day, coming in, Jurassic Park. So I know some Jurassic Park, okay. All right, so where am I going with this? There's a scene in Jurassic Park, without any spoilers, I know some kids haven't seen it, you're not ready for the dino carnage yet, but you will be one day. <laughs> but there's this scene in Jurassic Park, spoiler free here, famous T-Rex scene, you all know what I'm talking about, uh, midway through the movie, and uh, before all this stuff happens, the dino carnage happens, the kids are in the car, the two kids are in the car, Tim and Lex, with the lawyer, I can't remember his name, whatever his name is, and the lawyer's kind of this uptight guy, you know, buttoned up shirt and shorts, kind of dorky looking. And uh, Tim, they're bored, it starts to rain, it's getting dark, the power shut down, they're not going anywhere, they're sitting there. And the kid pulls out the, these night vision goggles, these awesome night vision goggles from out, out from under the seat, right? And the lawyer turns to him and says, where did you get that? He said, well, they were in a box under the seat. And he asks him, are they heavy? Yes, then they're expensive, put them back, right? And that's kind of the point of glory, that heaviness refers to something that's of substance, right? Like the law you're saying to these kids, these are not a toy, right? These are heavy, they're expensive, you need to put them back. So what glory is trying to connote about God, tell us about God, is that he is, he is of supreme importance. He is, the, he is of the most worth, of the most substance, right? When it's referred to God. Um, and, and glory is often associated with kingship, right? Kings are glorious, that's what they are. They're, you know, Tim in that movie in Jurassic Park, who could have turned you know, turn around to the lawyer and said, but they're glorious, right? These are glorious night vision goggles, but he didn't. Um, that would be like the Christian version of Jurassic Park. <laughs> but anyway, so the point is, glory is this idea of heaviness, of substance, of worth, of, of someone who, who is to be valued above all. It has to do with worth and dignity and value. And so David could have sought his own glorious king, but he's saying here that he regards Yahweh as his glory and boasts not in himself, but in God. God is the glorious one. And he associates himself with God and all the glory that he has is derivative, is derived from God himself, you see, because God is the glorious one. He grounds his, his worth and significance in God himself, not in anything anyone else can offer him in this world, even to be the king of Israel. As he says elsewhere, God is David's portion, right? That's all he wants. He wants God. He doesn't want riches, wealth, any of this other stuff, ultimately. That's what he says in other Psalms. He doesn't care about that stuff, ultimately. The king stuff, right? He wants God to be his portion. This is a quote from, uh, 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 well, Jim Hamilton in his co uh, commentary on Psalms. He said, that Yahweh is David's glory means that Yahweh is what is praiseworthy about David, what wins David honor and esteem from others. I think that's true as well. So my glory, he says. And likewise, in the New Testament, same thing. There's this idea of glory. And that somehow, even though in the Old Testament, God's not gonna share his glory with another, yet he does in some way share his glory with us. We are now, if you're in Christ, reigning with Christ. You know what that is? Sharing glory right? He's willing to share his glory with you in that sense, right? That you are co-heirs with Christ, that you reign with Christ now and in the future, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus. Um, glory is there too. And he says, the one, back to the psalm, and the one who lifts my head, that's a pretty obvious statement here. He's saying, going from a, from a place of being dejected and downcast, like if you walked in and saw me sitting there and I had my head in my hands, you know, you might be thinking, what's wrong with Ben? Like, and hopefully you come up and ask me, what's going on with you, you know? And I had a really bad night last night, didn't rest very well, I'm kind of depressed, whatever. That's what's going on here. His head is hanging down, right? And he's saying, David is saying, God is the one who lifts up my head. He gives me a boost, right? A, kind of a confidence boost, right? I'm no longer in, in the pit, or as, as the Pilgrim's Progress says, the slough of despond, right? That's a great description. I don't know what a slough is. I guess it's like a murky, mucky pit, but um, slough of despond. David's not there anymore. God is the one who lifts his head. I was crying to Yahweh with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. So he's crying out to the Lord, and he says, God answered me. Now, we don't know exactly what 
In what way, God answered him, but he says he did. I don't know if God spoke to him or if it's uh, inner peace or whatever. I mean, I, I'm sure we've all, as believers, had this sensation this, or experience where you pray and you're just, you're over here, like you're, you're, in, you're just feeling in the dark, you're feeling down, and you pray and God does something, you don't understand it, and then you're not anymore. And I would say, God answered me, right? Maybe that's what's going on with David. Probably is, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's something more than that, it doesn't tell us. But whatever, however that works out, God answers David from his holy mountain. What is, what is this holy mountain? Well, I have another sheet here. It's a lot longer. I'm not going through that whole thing either, but trying to figure out what his holy mountain is referring to, and here it is. So a little bit of geography here. So uh, my kids were surprised to know that Jerusalem is on a mountain because it's not, I mean, when you think of that, you think of like, I don't know, like Olympus or something. Like it's like, oh yeah, up here. And it's just a hill, you know? Jerusalem's not like way up on a huge, it's not like way up on Mount Everest or something. But it's, a, it's elevated, right? It's a Jebusite stronghold, remember? So in that day, those who had the high ground usually won. So Jerusalem's, Jerusalem is elevated, it's a mountain. And there are actually a couple of mountains there and a few mountains around Jerusalem. But one of the mountains was called Mount Zion. It's an actual mountain, that's the name, like, you know, like Mount, Mount Everest, Mount Zion. And Mount Zion is the place where, um, it's the place where the, the temple was eventually built, of course, and the place where the Ark of the Covenant rests. And in short, it's the place where God made his presence known and concentrated. So this holy mountain language is, is referring to Mount Zion, and it's holy because God is there, and God is holy. So the mountain is, is just a mountain, but when God shows up and he's there, that becomes holy. Right? It's a place where God is. And this is some of the language used about this holy mountain through the Bible. His holy mountain is at Jerusalem in Isaiah 27. It is called Zion in Psalm 2.6. I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. There's the language, right? Um, and it is just directly called Jerusalem in Isaiah 66. And it's equated with the city of our God in Psalm 48.1. And it's also linked with the temple and prayer in Isaiah 56, and lastly linked to worship of God in Ezekiel 20, verse 40. So what's going on here with this language of holy mountain is that holy mountain is a, uh, the word is, uh, is synecdoche. Synecdoche is just a fancy word for when a part represents the whole. Uh, and I try to think of a, a modern, I'm sure there's some obvious thing I'm missing, but a modern example of this, but it's like people used to say, oh, I have a new, some new wheels. And I don't go out, like if, if Dylan said, I've got some new wheels. But, oh, okay, let's go see them. I, I wouldn't expect to walk out there and see like four wheels on the ground, you know? Like, what am I expecting to see? A car, right? So um, I would expect to see a car. Well, he's not referring to just wheels. He's using the wheels apart to refer to the entire car. Or someone might say, again, this is a dated thing. I wouldn't even, I never said this myself, but I've got some new threads. Like, we're not talking about like the individual threads in my clothing. We're talking about, clothing, right? Um, again, those are all like dated examples. You could give me your updated ones later that I couldn't come up with. But that's what's going on with Zion and with Jerusalem. That Zion, though it's one part, it's just, a, it's just one mountain, it's not the whole thing, it comes to represent the entire city of Jerusalem. And eventually it comes to represent the people themselves are referred to as Zion. Or sometimes they're called the daughter of Zion. You, you read that language in the prophets, that the Israelites were called the daughter of Zion, right? Um, uh, it's personification of Zion is giving birth to the people, right, that are there. And so this mountain, uh, this holy mountain is, is, he's talking about Jerusalem, and David's thinking, this is before the temple was built there, but he's thinking about the Ark of the Covenant being there and about God being there, right? That's the point. God is there. That's where God has concentrated himself. And God has answered me from his holy mountain. He's answered me from Jerusalem. In other words, it's almost like he's saying, God has not abandoned me. He still knows that I'm part of that city of Jerusalem and Zion is, is my real home and, and I'm the king, I'm the rightful king. God, is, God has not abandoned me. Maybe all these other people, including my son Absalom and all his followers and Ahithophel and all these folks have turned against me, but God is still there. Though I'm not reigning currently as king in Jerusalem, I'm outside the city gates, right? God is still there. Because the Ark of the Covenant is still there. Actually, in 2 Samuel, when the people are leaving, they try to take the Ark out, and David says, no, 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 put it back, leave it here. He knows. Why does he do that? That's interesting. Because he knows God's going to take it back there. Right? 
He's confident that God will return him to the city. How does he know that? Because he knows God is a promise-keeping God, right? God keeps his word, and that he's the rightful king, and that no matter what happens with Absalom or whoever else, it's not going to be game over for the kingship, because he says, you're always going to have a man on the throne. That's what he tells him in 2 Samuel 7, right? The kingship is not going to end with David. It's just going to go forward with David. So David knows this, and that affects his decisions that he makes about the ark in this, in this case. So God is there. It's a holy place. The people associated with the city and the mountain should be holy too. Well, according to, you know, this is not just an Old Testament thing, is it? The New Testament calls, talks about Mount Zion several times. Not that many, but several times. According to uh, Hebrews 12, 22, we who are in the new covenant through Christ have already come to Mount Zion. Or as Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. That means our citizenship is in Zion, the new Jerusalem. Paul says in Galatians, the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. What does all this mean? Well, it means we don't have to go to a particular city or temple to worship God through the Spirit. We have become the dwelling place for God through, his, through the Spirit, right? We become the dwelling place. We are permanently part of his heavenly city, which will one day become coextensive with the earth, which just means that in Revelation, heaven comes down to earth and God's glory fills the earth and everything, the whole universe is, is, a, is a temple. Actually, the whole universe is the, is the holy of holies in, in, in Revelation. There's, in other words, there's gonna be no place where God isn't and, and manifesting that glory. Now, he is everywhere now, right? You can't go anywhere to flee from his presence. He's everywhere. But it's gonna be manifestly, he's gonna be manifestly present in that day. We're waiting for that. But even as we wait, our citizenship is now in heaven, if you know the Lord, right? You are now a citizen of Mount Zion. That's where your, that's where your, you know, your, your card is, if you, you know, a citizen of, of Zion, right? That's our primary and fundamental identity, which has so much bearing on politics, doesn't it, right? We have to always keep this in mind. This is, I didn't mean to say anything about this, not in my notes, this is just a tangential thing, but we have to always keep that in mind that politics have their place in, in some limited fashion in our life, this part of the world, right? So we have a place in that somewhere. But our fundamental identity that we have to always placard before our eyes is we are citizens of heaven. We are citizens of Mount Zion. And that's where we want to be, ultimately. We don't set our hope here on, in, the, in the things going on and trying to improve this present world to some utopia. We know that's not going to happen, right? We're looking for the, the new heavens and new earth, the home of righteousness. That's what we're looking for. So, we've come to Mount Zion, and that's what he's referring to here is that um, he's calling out and God has, God has answered him from his holy mountain, Mount Zion. He says, I lay down and slept. I awoke, for Yahweh sustains me. It's interesting. So he's, he starts out saying how upset he is. He's calling out for deliverance. He's saying all these people are against me. But now he's able to lay down and sleep, right? That's an amazing thing. He, he can sleep soundly, soundly without fear because Yahweh has answered him and given him this confidence he's protected from harm by God himself. I awoke for Yahweh sustained me. Not only is he able to rest, but God protects him through the night and wakes him up in the morning. And I couldn't help but think of one of these Psalms of Ascent, one of my favorite Psalms of Ascent, uh, Psalms of Ascent, and this is it, Psalm 122. I'm just gonna read it, it's eight verses. I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where shall my help come from? My help comes from Yahweh, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Yahweh is your keeper. Yahweh, excuse me. Yahweh is the shade on your right hand. The sun will not smite you by day, nor the moon by night. Yahweh will protect you from all evil. He will keep your soul. Yahweh will guard your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forever. That's David's attitude here, is that he can lay down and sleep. He doesn't have to be worried about falling asleep and, asleep and someone coming upon him and killing him, because he knows that God's promises are for him, that he is the rightful king of Israel. He will be 
put back in the proper place at some point along the way. He just doesn't know how that's gonna happen or when it's gonna happen, but he has a confidence in the Lord. Now you might be thinking, as I think, well, that's for David, that's great, you know? Like he, he has all these promises from God and he knows specifics about what's gonna happen, you know, in his future and that's great, but what about us, right? What about our day-to-day life, right? What about our daily struggles and worries and I don't know about you, but God's not dropping like detailed plans about what he's gonna do you know, into my email inbox or into, the, into my mailbox or anything like that. You know, um, What do we do? Well, we don't know a lot of things about how our life is gonna unfold, do we? In the details. We don't, that's true. But we do know that God is still the shade at our right hand. We do know that if God is for us, who can be against us, right? There's this ultimate sense of, always in the scriptures, this ultimate sense of God, if, if God is for you, you can't lose. That doesn't mean you can't die. It doesn't mean you can't be tortured. It doesn't mean people can't take your stuff. It doesn't mean people are not gonna betray you. It doesn't mean that people are gonna always be nice to you, but it means you can't lose, ultimately. Paul says that we are, we overwhelmingly conquer, right? Overwhelmingly conquer. It's hupernikao, which means you super conquer. That's what it means. Here's conquer, nikaho. You, you super conquer. It's above conquering. You super conquer in Christ. That's what we are. But our super conquering isn't in ourselves, right? It's in Christ who loved us, is what Paul says. We don't conquer in ourselves. We're not these conquerors. Our conquering that Paul's talking about in Romans 8 is because God is our help and that Christ is our Lord and that Christ is our Savior. That's how we conquer. We super conquer. So he says here, I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me round about. Interesting. He starts out worrying and, and, and fretting over all these people rising up against him. And now he's gotten to the place because of God's work in his heart somewhere along the way in this prayer where now he says, I'm not worried about 10,000 people around me, right? It doesn't matter. If God is for me, whether it's one or 20 million people, it doesn't matter. God is gonna take care of this, right? What a statement of confidence, right? He's moved from fear and complaint to how many adversaries he has to a statement of such confidence that the number of enemies is irrelevant if God is for him. This sounds like pie in the sky out there in the world, but this is really the way we ought to think about our lives. I'll give you a concrete example, and I'm not citing this because I'm super spiritual, because this is often not the way I process things. But with this new job recently, you know, I'm, I've been wanting a new job for a while, and I've been praying about it for years, and Dylan knows, we talked about it a lot. And um, the first interview I did with Interim was a position for Spartanburg, and I live in Simpsonville, so I wasn't too psyched about that. But I interviewed, and I felt good about it, and even afterward, they said the interview went great. They gave the position to somebody else. Now, in that moment, I could have been pretty downtrodden, right? <laughs> Head in my hands, you know. Um, I wasn't. I wasn't. By God's grace, I just thought, you know what? This is God. This is the Lord's will. It's fine. That's really how I felt about it. I don't always feel that way. I'm not trying to style myself as some super spiritual person, but I'm saying that I wish I always was that way because it's so, it's so unburdening <laughs> to live that way, right? And difficult but so unburdening to live that way and say, you know what? No matter what happens to me, it's from the Lord. It's fine. It's fine. He's the shade in my right hand. He's, it's, it's, it's fine. Even if 10,000 people come against me, it doesn't matter. That's how we ought to be, brothers and sisters. Not worried about all the things out there that could happen to us and just putting our focus on the Lord himself as the one who is the conqueror, right? So we super conquer because of his conquering. Finishing up the psalm, he says, Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek, you have shattered the teeth of the wicked. So even though he has this confidence, he's still not out of the woods yet. You know, he's not saying, oh yeah, I feel great about it now, uh, so problem solved. He says, I feel, I feel confident, but I still have the problem. So he continues to call out to the Lord. That's part of faith, right? To continue to call out to the Lord and not just give up. So he calls for God to arise and save him from this situation, um, since many are rising up against him, he calls for God to arise and oppose them. It's the same Hebrew word, actually. Many are rising up. Now, God, I want you to arise and oppose them for me. That's what he 
is asking God to do. And he says, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek, you have shattered the teeth of the wicked. So it's interesting, the, the tense, the way he puts it, because it's, it's in the past, right? For you have done these things. But wait a minute, didn't he just say, save me? Like, I'm not saved yet, so why are you saying it like it's already been done? Well, there are two possibilities. One, which I think is less likely, is that he's, he's recounting past deliverances, and that's why he puts it in the past. I think more, more logically and, and, and probably based on other passages and the way this works out is that he's stating, he's stating it in the past as if it's a done deal. In other words, it's part of the whole confidence motif. He's so confident that God's gonna deliver him that he states it, uh, states it in the past, puts it in the past as if it's already a done deal. That's what's going on here. It's, it's in the perfect tense in the Hebrew, and, and some people call this a perfect of confidence. It's a common construction in the Hebrew or a common thing that's done in the perfect tense where it's, it's stated in the past, even though it hasn't actually come to place, or come to pass, rather, because God is, or the psalmist, rather, is so confident in God that he's gonna be delivered. I think that's what's going on here. And he calls for God to do some pretty violent stuff, doesn't he? Knock the teeth out of their mouth, essentially. Smack, smack them on the, on the cheek. Knock the teeth out of their, their, their mouth, he says, the teeth of the wicked. Now, we talked about this a bit in, in the um, Psalms uh, Sunday School about imprecatory elements in the Psalms, cursing elements, or asking God to do, do these terrible things oftentimes to people and how to process them. We can't go, go through all that. I'll just say a few things about it. Number one, David is, is asking God to do it, number one. He's not saying, I'm gonna go do this. I'm gonna go knock their, you know, the, the teeth out of their mouth or whatever. He's asking God to do it for him. He's asking God because he can't do it. He's powerless to really deal with this situation. Number two is that he is the rightful king of Israel and the king is supposed to keep a just society. So this is actually within the purview of him as a king to do these things. Um, it's interesting, you read in Psalm 18, I'm just gonna read a few verses here. He puts the two things together that he asks God to do something like this, 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 this imprecatory thing, this violent element, or whatever you want to say, but then he puts himself in the role of actually following through with it. Psalm 18, verse 31. For who is God but Yahweh, and who is a rock except our God, the God who girds me with strength and makes my way blameless? He makes my feet like hinds feet and sets me upon my high places. He trains my hands for battle. Well, that sounds like he's gonna be doing some battle, doesn't it? He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have also given me the shield of your salvation and your right hand upholds me and your gentleness makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me and my feet have not slipped. I, pursu I pursued my enemies and overtook them and I did not turn back until they were consumed. This is right. This is what David should be doing. They are his personal enemies but he is, not attack, he is not attacking them with a personal vendetta. That's not what's going on here. He's attacking them because number one, they have set themselves in opposition to Yahweh himself. And number two, because they're opposing the king. Remember Psalm two, I've set my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Now who are these people saying otherwise? Oh, God laughs at them. He holds them in derision, right? Okay, so they're opposing God. And number two, yes, they're opposing David, but Again, he's the king, so it's his job to keep justice in the kingdom, all right? So we have to always keep these things in mind when we read these Psalms, that we can't just jump over and say, well, you know, this person said something mean to me, I'm gonna go punch him in the head. No, that's not what we do. That's not what the Psalms are prescri <coughs> prescribing here. We're not in the same context. We have to bear all that in mind. Um, and and just, just to summarize and put a fine point on it as far as imp imprecations go in the New Testament. I argued in the Sunday school, here's my conclusion, I'm not gonna support it right now, but that yes, we love our enemies, yes, we do good to those who persecute us, but there is a, a category of, of folks in the New Testament, especially those who are opposing the gospel in active opposition, active, wicked, active wickedness in opposition to the gospel, and there are prayers to oppose them, for God to oppose them. Paul says, may they be accursed those who are preaching a false gospel in Galatia. May they be accursed. That means, may they go to hell if they don't change their teaching and their ways, right? So I'm not gonna say any more about that right now because we don't have time or we're out of time. Uh, but just let me uh, round it off with this. Uh, the, last, the last verse here, salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be upon your people. So um, the, sum, the sum, summation here is that 
God is our strong tower. Salvation belongs to Yahweh, not to us. So what ought we to do? We ought to turn to the Lord, right? When something hard comes our way, we, we're, we don't know what to do, we don't know where to turn. We do know where to turn. You turn to God. Don't forget where you do know where to turn. You just don't want to do it a lot of times. I don't want to do it a lot of times. We'd rather mope, complain, gripe, grumble. God doesn't like grumbling. Exodus, right? Doesn't like grumbling. He wants us to turn to him in faith. Um, how, are we, how ought we to fight in, in the new covenant? Where is our fight? Well, our weapons are spiritual, right? Ephesians 6 makes clear that our weapons in fighting are all spiritual in nature. Not, uh, we're not supposed to be, you know, again, attacking people or whatever. Um, <clears throat> let me get to my notes here. So, the statement of, of, of salvation being from the Lord sums up David's entire approach to being put in hard spots. God is, God is the deliverer and the helper. He's the one we must turn to for salvation. How does this apply to us? It applies to salvation from our ultimate enemies of sin and death, right? And the devil, who's our adversary. We have an enemy, the devil, we're told. We are only great by his power, meaning God's power and protection. Faith is what protects us from Satan's flaming arrows. What he says in Ephesians 6, Paul says flaming arrows. He says it's the shield of faith, which is, a, for those of you who are grammatically inclined, genitive of apposition probably, meaning the shield which is faith. And he says, depending on your translation, I think the ESV has it uh, pretty good. I don't have the ESV pulled up here, but at all times or something like that, taking up the shield of faith, I think that's the translation. It's, that's at all times we need faith, at all times. Because you know what? Satan's attacking us at all times. Satan doesn't take a day off, does he? He has those flaming arrows coming. It's like Lord of the Rings, Legolas keeps pulling those arrows out. You're like, I don't know where they're coming from, but they're coming out of that quiver. That's what it is with Satan, right? Same thing. Um, we have an enemy. We have our sin. Faith in Ephesians 6 is, as one person said, I like this, believers taking hold of God's resources, especially his power, in the midst of the evil one's attacks. Believers taking hold of God's resources. That's the line I want you to remember. That's what we have to do, right? And that's faith. That's what faith is. Faith, and this, this is my word, wording here, faith is the instrument whereby we access God's protective power. Faith is actively turning away from ourselves and our own limitations, our limited resources, and turning to God himself who is unlimited in resources. And according to 1 Peter 5, 9, we resist the devil by being firm in our faith. Again, it's all about faith, right? It's about turning to God and turning to the gospel. That's what, it, that's what it's about. Peter had to learn this lesson the hard way. We just talked about 1 Peter resisting the devil. Peter knows this. He's tangled with Satan. Jesus tells Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. What a scary thought, right? How would you like to be told that? Satan's come up and he's asked God for permission to attack you. You are going to be sifted like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. That's an awesome passage, right? That Jesus prays for us. You think he only prays for Peter? You think he hasn't prayed for you and me? That our faith will not fail? I think he probably prays it every day, right? That we're not alone in this fight, brothers and sisters. That Jesus Christ has our back. He has our six, right? He prays just like he prayed for Peter. He prays for us that our faith would not fail because we're gonna be tempted to fail in faith and we do fail in faith. But this is an ultimate failing, right? In the case of Peter, did he, in one sense, did he fail in faith? Well, yes, obviously, right? He denied the Lord three times for crying out loud. But what Jesus is talking about here, because he says when you have turned again, strengthening your brothers is that this ultimate failure of, a, of turning finally and ultimately and conclusively away from the Lord, that's what he's praying for. That's what he prays for for us too. I believe that. Jesus Christ prays that for us. So, we're out of time. Um, the point's pretty obvious. We need faith, we need confidence, we need to turn away from ourselves, brothers and sisters, and, and come to the Lord, no matter what it is that Satan's throwing at you or your flesh is throwing at you. Um, those things are not big enough to actually do you harm if you are in Christ, that's the point. Those things cannot take you out of the game. Christ is stronger than all these things. All right, so let's pray. 
And um, I know I'm going over here, but um, let's pray and, uh, and ask the Lord to um, help us to live this way. Lord, um, we are so thankful as always that you have communicated your word to us and it's easy to understand by and large, Lord. There's things here, there are things here and there we don't quite get, but Lord, this is straightforward. We should be trusting in you. We should not be trusting in ourselves. We should be those who, uh, who know our identity, that we belong, if we belong to you, that we don't need to worry. We don't need to fret. We don't need to fear. We don't need to um, complain and grumble. We need to just turn to you and say, Lord, be my strong tower. Help us, help me to uh, know what to do and how to live. And, and just to have that confidence in you that you are not you're not going to uh, do anything to harm us, Lord. If we belong to you, nothing can ultimately and finally harm us, or not a hair of our head will, will be harmed, Lord. Um, and we ask you to uh, just give us this, this confidence every day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.